Picture this. You grow up as a first-generation American. You go through school, you graduate college, earn a master's, build an entire professional career, and then drop it all to process dried shrimp. He got a degree in physics. He's a pilot. And what did he do? He took over to business. Remember, you honor your parents. Always. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. New Orleans has long been home to people of many cultures. Dating back to the colonial era, you had indigenous groups, then European colonizers, enslaved people forcibly brought here from Africa, free people of color fleeing Haiti, In the past century, there have been waves of immigrants, Sicilians, Germans. The city is now home to a thriving Vietnamese population. But there's another often overlooked ethnic group here, Chinese immigrants, who came here over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. They worked in the industry Louisiana is famous for, seafood, specifically shrimp, but not those plump, boiled, head-on beauties you eat with potatoes, corn, and sausage, or the barbecue kind, bathed in Worcestershire sauce and butter and sopped up with French bread. Instead, New Orleans Chinese immigrants have traditionally produced dried shrimp, tiny, shriveled, and just as coveted, if less well-known outside the Asian community. Producer Lane Kaplan-Levinson brings us this story about how that forgotten South Louisiana Chinese community built family businesses, which ended up globalizing the state's seafood industry. So now we're turning on to Decatur here. Yep. Are we going to check out the St. Louis place? Well, we will try. Don Davis is driving me around the French Quarter in New Orleans. I wouldn't describe driving in the quarter as fun, but Don loves it. He's a cultural geographer. He's also a Sea Grant scholar at Louisiana State University, but this is how he prefers to introduce himself. Uh, Hi, I'm Don. I'm going to talk to you now. That's it. Just Don. That was one of the many signs I knew I'd like Don as soon as we met. We're looking for the former headquarters of the Kuang Sun Company, a Chinese export business that operated on St. Louis Street for over 50 years. Is it St. Peter's or St. Louis? This is, this is St. Louis. But isn't it, didn't it, it's on St. Peter's, I think. Saint, he told me St. Louis. Don's endlessly curious about the different communities in Louisiana, especially those that choose to settle in the precarious wetlands. This is what led Don to the Chinese immigrant population and how they got to New Orleans. Chinese immigration to America began in the mid-19th century. This first wave of immigrants mainly went to California to cash in on the gold rush or lay down railroads. By the end of the century, most people coming from the Canton region to the Bay Area went into the fishing industry. And became so successful that a number of species went extinct in San Francisco Bay. When that resource was overexploited, the fishermen knew that there were other areas, so they came to Louisiana and discovered the wetlands. This was like Gold Rush Part Two. Louisiana's waters were even more fruitful than California's, and other less lucrative jobs were available inland, too. The Civil War was over, formerly enslaved people were free, and agricultural jobs were open on plantations. A lot of Chinese served as cheap labor for planters all over the Gulf South. Americans didn't seem to mind this influx of Chinese workers over the past few decades until they started feeling territorial over their jobs. These economic tensions brought cultural prejudice. As racial discrimination spread, the country responded. America threw up its first legislative anti-immigration wall. 
And you have to remember, because of the Exclusion Act of 1882 and 1943, for 61 years, you could not immigrate into this country if you were Chinese. The Chinese Exclusion Act was the first law that prevented a specific ethnic group from immigrating to the U.S. Don's right that it was repealed in 1943, but restrictions on Chinese immigration remained until 1965. The act was targeted specifically towards laborers, and it wasn't so easy to convince the U.S. government that you weren't heading to America for work. All of a sudden, it was illegal to come here, but people still figured out how to get in and keep a low profile. One way the Chinese did it was by living out in the middle of the wetlands, literally. They discovered that they could go out into the wetlands and build a platform and basically be isolated. Out of sight, out of mind. Right there in the middle of the Barataria Bay. You're not going to find them. (laughs) The Chinese were not the first to do this. Filipino immigrants had the same idea almost 100 years earlier. They came to the Gulf South to make a living as fishermen and built a settlement in Barataria Bay called Manila Village. They were actually the ones to introduce dried shrimp to the States, catching and drying the shrimp on platforms they built above the water. In the Philippines, cooks crushed the dried shrimp into a powder and used it to season lots of dishes and soups. It's used similarly in Chinese cuisine, cooked into noodle and rice dishes and a lot of dim sum plates too. Dried shrimp lends dishes that umami flavor, aka the fifth taste. And because it has that sweet and salty one-two punch, Cajun country eventually took to the product and used it in their gumbos. The Chinese who headed to Louisiana in the mid-1800s joined the Filipino community that was already well-established out on Barataria Bay and built many, many more platforms, expanding the settlement beyond Manila Village. By the 1870s, there was an entire world of shrimp-drying platforms. These Chinese fishermen eventually outnumbered the Filipino community, building over 100 huge wooden decks over the course of a century. Each one was almost three football fields in size. They were raised up on stilts, just a few feet above the marsh. And they built camps on the platforms. Little homes, water cisterns, the works. But the conditions were rough. A lot of workers out there on the platforms, drawing the shrimp, didn't end up there by choice. They were kidnapped. Well, in the French Quarter, and we've interviewed the son of a gentleman that did this, they would, their job was to go to the French Quarter and find somebody that's just drunk as a skunk and they would offer them wine. And the next thing you know, they're in a boat. They end up on one of these platforms and there's no way off. They don't have an iPhone. They're just gone. There weren't enough people that were like, well, I need a job. Who wants to go in a a mosquito-infested, isolated community of which you have nothing else to do but work? Woof, good point. I asked Don about the kids living out there with their parents. So did they go to school? No. You didn't have child labor laws. If you were four years old, you went to work. And the work was intense. The platforms were tilted with high and low points. The shrimp was caught in handheld nets, immediately boiled in huge pots, and then dumped out on the platforms to sun-dry for a couple days. But rain comes any time, any day around here, making it a rat race to constantly cover and uncover the shrimp. Weather also made this an extremely dangerous job. Maybe you've heard, Louisiana's kind of known for its hurricanes. So you're just there, and then you get wiped out by a hurricane. And of course, death toll was catastrophic. And what did you do? You went back and you rebuilt your platform. 
Because that's how you made a living. And you went to the French Quarter and got people drunk and shipped them back to yep. have a new labor force. Exactly. Oh somebody, my God. Somebody had to do it. If this labor force could successfully get the shrimp to dry without a storm destroying them, the next step was to put burlap sacks over their feet and dance on the shrimp, as they called it. This shook the hard, brittle shells right off and left the dried bodies clean. Let's actually go to Barataria Bay for a minute. Right now, we're going on the right is going to be Jean Lafitte National Park. This was originally going to be the Lafitte LaRose Highway. I'm in another car, this time with New Orleans native Chris Turgeon, who loves to talk about his family. Well, my Uncle Frost, he was a big guy, he was about 6'7", 275 pounds. He carried a Dirty Harry Special, a 44 Magnum. You know, when a shoulder holster everywhere he went, he's a badass. <laughs> he was a badass. And uh, so he married my Aunt Patricia. Aunt Patricia is Patricia Alexi, Chris's link to the shrimp drying platform Manila Village. Frost marrying Patricia wasn't the most exciting news for Chris's grandma, Uncle Frost's mom. You know, she was like a, a real blue blood. It was like, you know, aristocracy kind of thing. You know, it's just that you don't talk to common folk, you know, who, uh, who work on the boats. And those are all my uncle's best friends. He loved them. And so he identified more. So he married Patricia, and she was from the family, a Filipino family. And the families that lived out on the shrimp drying platform. Remember that Filipino fishermen pioneered the dry shrimp industry in Louisiana. They built Manila Village before the Chinese and other immigrants started arriving in large numbers. We arrive at Patricia's house, a beautiful elevated home in Jean Lafitte, Louisiana, the town she's lived in her whole life. She's been in this house for the past 30 years. It's tucked away, back from the main road and engulfed by massive oak trees draped in Spanish moss. Her husband Frost built it for them. He died a few years ago of a stroke, but Patricia still has his shoes tucked under her piano in the living room. Come sit. Come sit right here, Aunt Patricia. Sit and grab this chair. She sits down in an armchair four times her size to remember what she could about her Manila Village days. I just used to go out there, you know, in the summer. Well, Mercy was the one she used to stay out there. She, she had a camp. Mercy is Patricia's older sister. Yes, she and I used to go with her after school. Mm-hmm. I'd just oh, okay. get off the bus and run on the boat and go out. Mercy was already married when Patricia was still a little girl. She and her husband made a living catching and drying fish, which is also used in soups and eaten on its own. They worked alongside the folks drying shrimp. The Chinese... Chinese were, had it when we were Ping and Wing. They had the platform. Who's Ping and Wing? That was, the, I guess, the owners at the time. The populations of these camps were really diverse. Workers were many ethnicities, but the Chinese were often the ones who owned and operated the businesses. My sister had a camp. She would, her and her husband had a camp there, and they would, in the summer, they would go out and catch fish and sell the fish to the Chinamen, that's what they would salt the fish and put them in barrels and then they would uh, dry them. And the tradition continued with Chris, who spent his summers during high school living out on the camps. They didn't sell to dried shrimp processors, but he and his uncle Frost trawled shrimp and sold it to seafood supply companies. Sadly, in 1965, Hurricane Betsy ripped through the Barataria Bay and wiped everything out. You see, Betsy blew away the whole platform. That was all that was left. Oh, so That's okay. why they just had that one camp. Oh. I didn't even know. Your Uncle Frost took me fishing, 
and we went to this place. I saw this camp. I said, well, what is this? He said, it's Manila Village. I said, Manila Village, this is it? And then just that one camp was left. Mm -hmm. Everything else was gone. This sparks a rare occasion for Chris. He goes quiet. It's sad for both of them to think about Manila Village being gone after so many years out there as a family. Hurricane Betsy launched a shift in the shrimp drying business. After rebuilding over and over again, every time a huge storm came through, Betsy was the final straw. Coming up, dried shrimp processing in the 21st century. And why don't we hear more about companies with Chinese names in coastal Louisiana? That's ahead. There is that donor music. We're proud of the investment Lodge Manufacturing makes in the Southern Foodways Alliance. And we're proud to tell you about the investment Lodge makes in the future of Marion County, Tennessee, where the company is headquartered. Every day in the town of South Pittsburgh, a new batch of skillets, Dutch ovens, and griddles roll off the Lodge Manufacturing line. And still, folks are clamoring for more. To meet that demand, Lodge Manufacturing has cooked up the largest expansion in its history. That expansion will drive the growth of Lodge, will also drive the growth of Marion County, Tennessee, and the town of South Pittsburgh, where Lodge will soon employ 400 people. For 120 years, the Lodge Foundry has been a beacon of American manufacturing. This expansion will ensure that legacy for another 120 years, at least. And now, back to Lane Kaplan-Levinson. The massive platforms for drying shrimp out in the middle of Louisiana's Barataria Bay proved to be too painstaking to keep rebuilding after Hurricane Betsy. So the dried shrimp industry embraced a modernized indoor approach. This is what Robert Collins does now. I'm Robert Collins. Um, I'm a dried shrimp processor. Robert's from Grand Isle, Louisiana, a barrier island between Barataria Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. This is where a lot of the dried shrimp was offloaded onto the mainland from the platforms back in the day. My grandfather started in the dried shrimp business probably in the uh, probably the early 30s. And it was done outside in the sun, and eventually it progressed to inside dryers. And that's what we're doing now. And I'm just following up on the same generation, same culture, same type of business. And my son would like to do the same thing. Which is rare, because this is still tough work. Robert's employees dump the shrimp into huge boilers and boil them for about three or four minutes at around 185 degrees. From the boiler, they brought into the drying room, and there they put onto these drying tables, and we put 600 pounds on each table, and it takes us approximately five and a half to six hours to dry one batch of shrimp. On a good day, his plant can do 30,000 pounds. That's a lot of shrimp. That is a lot of shrimp. The shrimp dry on the tables with machine-powered heating fans, and then workers use what are still called Chinese rakes, special tools used to deshell the product. Not exactly dancing on the shrimp in burlap sacks, but just as difficult, especially since these guys are working in 150-degree temps, meaning you still need to be pretty hardcore to do this job. We hire a lot of local boys, and oh, they have a rough time with it. We take good men, and they almost fall into their knees sometimes, but, you know... We give them a drink of water and send them back in. (laughs) Robert's grandfather learned how to dry shrimp from Chinese immigrants in the late 1800s. He says now the Chinese mainly focus on the wholesale distribution end of the biz. We used to deliver on St. Louis Street to Gulf Food Products, and that's where we sold the fish at. 
Gulf Food Products takes us back to the Kuang Sun Company, which takes us back to the French Quarter. Don Davis and I eventually found what we were looking for, by the way. I think it's right here. I think that's the business right there. We also found 81-year-old Bob Hoy, whose father, Chin D. Hoy Sr., started the Kuang Sun Company in the early 1920s. Well, my father was uh, very young when he came here. I guess he was like 12 or 13 initially. This means that Chin Di Hoi came to the U.S. from Canton at the turn of the 20th century, when that Chinese Exclusion Act was still in full effect. So Bob's dad is a perfect example of someone who got around this restriction somehow or other, which may be one reason Bob doesn't know so much about his family history. His dad never talked about it. He never talked much, period. Were you close to your dad? Close. By real, real close, no, I would say no. Um, he uh, very rarely said anything except go study, <laughs> something to that, to that effect. So I would say, no, we weren't real, real close. What about your mom? You know, about the same. They, oriental families are a little strange like that. It was a quiet household. But what Bob does know is that his dad formed Kuang Sun, managed the shrimp drying platforms from the city, packaged the shrimp in 200-pound barrels, and shipped it off to China. Today, a lot of the shrimp we Americans eat is from China. But back then, the Chinese came here to catch and dry shrimp to send back to their homeland. This makes dried shrimp the first international market for a Louisiana product, thanks to the Chinese. We used to just eat them dried, just like peanuts. Of course, these days, it's pretty expensive to eat like peanuts. (laughs) Last I heard, it was in the range of $20, $25 a pound. So dried shrimp wasn't just used as an ingredient in dishes. It was also a snack on its own, like a bag of chips or cracklins. The Kuang Sun Company also sold wholesale to Chinatowns in New York, California, even Hawaii. But Bob's dad was ambitious. He wanted to reach non-Chinese buyers. So during World War II, Kuang Sun became Gulf Food Products. Of course, that's the purpose. There's Don Davis again. That's the purpose. You have to Americanize. And sometimes vice versa. Don explains. Do you ever remember an advertisement for, what was it, steak and lobster place? Red lobster. Red lobster. They used to sell a product called steak and langostino. And I'm watching, I'm going, steak, what the hell is a langostino? I don't know what that is. You know what it is? Crawfish. Latin name. Sounds better, doesn't it? Yeah, sounds romantic. Exactly. (laughs) You got it. It's marketing. It is classic marketing. I love it. You don't say steak and crawfish to somebody that's living in Maine or to Illinois or in Idaho or Nevada, but ooh, langostino, that sounds pretty good. I'll have some of that. (laughs) Yeah, let's go get some langostino. Exactly. In that case, the foreign-sounding word makes the product more desirable. And in Hoy's case, he wanted to sound more familiar, more American. This is when Gulf Food Products started buying not only the dried shrimp, but speckled trout from people like Patricia's sister, and when they started working with Robert Collins. And I would go with my dad, and I'd sit in the office, and I'd learn how they dealt business. And I would just sit around and listen. And after a while, you know, you'd see their different cultures and, you know, how they presented themselves to each other, how they departed after business was over. And it was a pretty amazing thing, you know. And we still, you know, basically still doing business the same way today. 
While Bob's dad ran Gulf Food Products, striking deals and shaking hands with Robert's dad, Bob went to Warren Easton High School in New Orleans. It was an all-white, all-boys school at the time. Back then, the schools were segregated, and black students went to separate schools. Other ethnicities, like Asians and Hispanics, were sent to the, quote, white schools. After Warren Easton, Bob went on to Tulane University. He got his BA, master's, and PhD in physics, and did a short stint in the ROTC with the Air Force. He returned to New Orleans to work for the space division of the Chrysler Corporation, and then got a university teaching gig. But then his dad died. Had you guys ever had any type of conversation where he had said, you know, I want you to keep it going? No, not really. He never never mentioned it. It's just that when my father passed, the, the, there was a need. He got a degree in physics. There's Don jumping in. He's a pilot, and what did he do? He took over the business. Remember, you honor your parents. Always. Bob says he didn't know anything about how to run the dry shrimp business, but... It's not rocket science. (laughs) And you would know because you kind of also do rocket science. Right, see? (laughs) So uh, it was a fairly easy transition. Bob Hoy ran his father's company until the early 2000s. During these years, he and Robert were the ones that shook hands. I do remember Mr. Bob Hoy buying quite a bit. Then Bob retired and sold the company. I like retirement. Do you eat a lot of dried shrimp? No. I haven't since I've left the company. Wow. I can't afford it. (laughs) Jokes aside, Bob is enjoying retirement. That's only possible because he knows his dad's dried shrimp company, the Gulf Food Products he kept going, is still going strong. Dried shrimp is still a viable industry. Although it started as primarily an export, today most of the dried shrimp processed in Louisiana is sold domestically. All of Robert Collins' product, for instance, is sold within the U.S. This shift took place mostly because the price of shrimp continues to rise in the United States and fall in China, so they're not looking to buy overseas. Plus, Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil spill both had significant impacts on the shrimp's supply and quality. Within the past decade, about half of the processing plants have gone out of business. Robert Collins is among those still chugging along. He always knew he wanted to go into the dried shrimp industry. That's all I wanted to do. It's good, you know. I don't regret it, you know. It had a tough time, tough years, but uh, it's a good living, good life. You know, I don't intend on ever getting a millionaire unless I win the lottery, you know. But uh, it's a good life, you know. And I want the kids, the kids are going to go on to college. And if they're still interested in it, they're more than welcome to take over the business. So hopefully one of them will have a little interest in it. He says, ultimately, new marketing schemes and expensive equipment won't save the dried shrimp industry. But if it stays a family business, his family and the other families he works with will keep the dried shrimp coming for years to come. Lane Kaplan-Levinson is the host of Tripod, a podcast from WWNO about the history of New Orleans. The interview with Robert Collins that was part of this piece was a Southern Foodways Alliance oral history as part of our Down the Bayou oral history project. You can learn more about that by going to our website, southernfoodways.org. 
You may have noticed some Chinese classical music in the mix of this episode. We had help finding that from Zach Bu, who's also going to help me pronounce the names of the pieces. Ambush from all sides. Shi Mian Mai Fu, composer's name Hua Chiu Ping. The river. Jiang He Shui, and the composer's name is um, Huang Hai Huai. High mountain and running river. Gao Shan Liu Shui. And the composer's name is Wang Xunzhi. And two ponds reflect the moon. Er Quan Ming Yue. And the composer's name is Hua Yan Jun. We also had music by David Sheshtai, Jason Leonard, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam, and to our intern, Tyler Pratt. Coming up a little bit on the next episode of Gravy. But first... On September 19th, the Southern Foodways Alliance will welcome Krishnendu Ray to the campus of the University of Mississippi. Dr. Ray is associate professor and chair of the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at NYU. And at a moment when authenticity and identity and appropriation are topics of debate, Dr. Ray's book, The Ethnic Restaurateur, offers a smart path to better understanding and more progressive conversations. You can visit southernfoodways.org to learn more about our fourth annual graduate student conference, which Dr. Ray will address. While you're online, become an SFA member. Membership dollars support all the organization's work, including our oral history projects and this podcast. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a waiter in 1960s Mississippi who was an unlikely civil rights figure and a piece of music inspired by him. Some call me Booker. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>